Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. Welcome, friends, to Heart to Heart with Anna. This is your host, Anna Jaworski, and I'm honored to host today's show, Non-Cardiac Health Issues for Survivors with Complex Congenital Heart Defects. This is the 12th episode of Season 1, and this show originally aired on January 28, 2014. Today's guests are Lauren Bednarts, David Simpson, and Dr. Amy Roberts, and we will be discussing different issues related to raising a child with a heart defect who has non-cardiac health issues or being a CHD survivor with non-cardiac health issues. Here is our show for today. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, featuring your host, Anna Jaworski. Our program is a program designed to empower the CHD or congenital heart defect community. Our program may also help families who have children who are chronically ill by bringing information and encouragement to you in order to become an advocate for your community. Now, here is Anna Jaworski. Welcome to the 12th episode of Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Our purpose is to empower members of our community with resources, support, and advocacy information. According to U.S. News and World Report and the Mayo Clinic, historically, only a minority of children born with a congenital heart defect survived into adulthood. However, recent advances in surgical treatments and techniques have reversed these statistics. Now, approximately 90% of children born with a heart defect live healthy lives through adulthood. This shift in survival rates has produced a relatively new group of patients with a new set of challenges for the medical community, adults with congenital heart disease. Today, adults with congenital heart disease outnumber children with that condition. As a mother of a congenital heart defect survivor and advocate for the heart community for the last 19 years, I've come in contact with hundreds of parents. We parents often talk about the other kinds of medical problems that frequently appear as our children grow up. The non-cardiac health issues that seem to appear fairly regularly in our heart community include, but are not limited to, survivors developing problems with their teeth, such as having an abscess, needing wisdom teeth removed or needing braces, spine problems. I mostly hear about our survivors having scoliosis, problems with legs or feet, which require braces or sometimes even surgery, women getting pregnant or having female problems male babies having problems with undescended testicles or parents expressing concern over whether they should have their baby circumcised or not, eye problems, but more often just children needing glasses, protein-losing enteropathy, other kinds of intestinal problems which frequently require feeding tube, gallstones or problems with the gallbladder, problems with the liver, especially in survivors who have had the Fontan procedure, plastic bronchitis, asthma, pneumonia, vocal cord problems, diaphragm problems, stroke, seizures, cancer, especially for our transplant recipients, allergies, and the list goes on and on. This is just the kind of list that would go on for any child growing up. 
What makes these conditions more worrisome for heart parents or heart survivors is that everything is more complicated when considering a body that has had open heart surgery, takes some kind of medication for the heart or blood thinners to prevent strokes, has been on paralyzing drugs, a heart-lung machine, or a ventilator. Nothing is ever simple with congenital heart defect survivors. They need to have special considerations when undergoing any kind of surgical procedure or treatment. The question we have today is, what kinds of non-cardiac health issues are common in the heart community and why? Today, we'll meet three individuals who have firsthand knowledge of non-cardiac issues affecting survivors of complex congenital heart defects, or CHDs. First, we have single ventricle survivor Lauren Bednars, who will share her experiences with scoliosis and eye problems. Next, we'll hear from David Simpson, father of a son with protein-losing enteropathy, or PLE. And lastly, we'll hear from Dr. Amy Roberts, a geneticist from Boston Children's Hospital, who will share with us possible genetic causes for non-cardiac health issues in survivors of complex CHDs. Lauren writes, My name is Lauren Bednards, and I am 26 years old. I was born with a complex congenital heart defect called tricuspid atresia, hypoplastic right ventricle, or simply put, half a heart. I have had two open heart surgeries, the last being the Fontan procedure 24 years ago. I was also born with two other medical issues. The first was an eye muscle disease for which I had patch therapy as a young child. I got my first pair of glasses at nine months old and have had three eye muscle surgeries so far at ages 18 months, seven years old, and 20 years old. I also have congenital scoliosis, which was not formally diagnosed until about 14 years of age. X-rays revealed I have an extra vertebrae in my lower back. My first liver MRI a few years ago showed I have a small non-cancerous tumor on my spine as well. We'll meet David Simpson and Dr. Amy Roberts later in our show. Thank you, Lauren, for coming back on our show. Thank you for having me again. Well, you are on our second episode of Heart to Heart to Anna, when we talked about how you dealt with anxiety over the years. I can't help but think that having a heart defect plus eye problems and scoliosis is partly why you had so much anxiety. Which of these conditions has caused you the most distress? Definitely my heart always calls me the most anxiety, especially with all the things that can happen afterwards, especially with being a Fontaner. But of the two non-cardiac issues, my eye problem is the one that gives me the most stress just because I have to wear glasses all the time and I've had surgeries with them. And my eyesight will only get worse, not improve. It will eventually decrease as I get older more and more. So actually got a new pair of glasses this year because my eyesight decreased more over the past probably five, six years. So Unfortunately, I think that happens with most of us. bit. <laughs> <laughs> let's say. But you're so beautiful in the photos that you've sent me. So it looks like you're not always wearing glasses. Are you able to wear contacts? No, I'm not. With the eye muscle disease I have, my eyes float all the time. So the lenses might get stuck up in my eyes. <laughs> so they usually, plus with my heart, there's a high risk of infection that I would have to consider. Okay. So, so you take your glasses off before you have your photos made? Before photos and when sleeping. Well, yeah, when sleeping. That's a good idea. <laughs> Okay, well, you are a beautiful young woman. Well, thank you so much. Well, I'm glad that you're talking to us about some of these eye surgeries. My son, Alexander, has been wearing glasses since he was four years old. But goodness, by then you had already had quite a bit done to your eyes. So can you tell us about the eye problems that you've had and the surgeries that you needed to try to repair those problems? 
Yeah, when I was a few months old, my parents noticed that my eyes were floating like one would go up and one would go in and I wouldn't be focusing very much. So they brought me in and I have what's called estropia, which is an eye muscle disease, which means my eye muscles and the communication between the brain and your eyes, there's some miscommunication there. So my eyes have weak muscles because of that. And the weak muscles can damage your eyesight because your eyes have trouble focusing. So yeah, I had three eye muscle surgeries and they basically were trying to tighten the muscles so my eyes didn't float as much so my eyesight wouldn't be as compensated. Okay. Wow, that sounds kind of complicated. I had a cousin who had problems with her eyes as well, and they put a patch on one eye to try and strengthen that eye because she had a lazy eye. And you said something about needing a patch too. What were the patches for? They did do patches first after I was diagnosed, hoping that maybe my eye muscle disease wasn't that bad. And sometimes it can be strengthened with patches, but mine was just so severe that the patches weren't really helping. So surgery intervention was the only way. Okay. So you've had three surgeries. Does that mean that like our heart surgeries for kids who are like you and like Alex, who have HLHS or HRHS, they have to do it in staged procedures. Was that the same case with your eyes that it had to be done progressively? No, the first one was hopefully a fix, but as I got older and you get bigger, the muscles kind of untightened, so they just kind of did another fix of it when I was seven. And when I was 20, I shouldn't really have had to need a third surgery, but... I was kind of rebellious and I didn't wear my glasses like I was supposed to, which compensated my eyesight and my eye muscles got loose. So I needed the third eye surgery and that's something that I kind of did myself a little bit. (laughs) So now you're much more aware of how significant wearing those glasses is. It's not just to help you read. It's actually to help your eyes stay focused and for them to not become weaker. Is that true? Yes, yes. So, yes. When you're a teenager, you kind of have a rebellious side anyways. So. Oh, yeah. I, I have, <laughs> have had two teenagers. So, yes, I could totally relate to that. And I was a teenager myself. Okay, so you've had three eye surgeries. And so now are you considered legally blind or are you okay with your glasses? I'm okay with my glasses. Even without them, I'm not considered legally blind yet. But one day I could be. So okay. I, we don't know. But I have a feeling that if I meet with you in person after this, you'll be wearing your glasses. Yes, (laughs) I will. (laughs) Okay. Okay. The mom in me is happy. (laughs) Okay. So let's move on to your other topic. So you talked about discovering that when you were 14, you had scoliosis. And in episode number 10, I interviewed Mark Cummings, who also had scoliosis. He had to have two rods inserted into his back to straighten it. Have doctors done anything to help you with your scoliosis? You know, I honestly have only had one back doctor, and that was the one that diagnosed me. He would crack my back sometimes. He would show me some moves to strengthen my muscle in my lower back. And I would have periodic x-rays to see where it stood and make sure it didn't get worse. He was also checking when my bones fused for when my growth spurt was done so you could see how bad it might be afterwards. And then I have an insole in my shoe to help level out my back because one hip sits higher than the other. But other than that, not really. No surgery. And when I moved to California, I do not have a back doctor as of right now, but I definitely am looking for one. Okay. 
Well, good. I'm glad you haven't actually needed surgery for that. And it sounds like there are some things that you can do, such as those exercises that will strengthen your back so you won't need surgery in the future. Is that right? Hopefully not. It's only mild to moderate, but you never know with scoliosis. Sometimes it could get worse. But right now I seem okay, but I do get pain. So that sometimes I get on a daily basis, but you know, you kind of learn to live with it. Advil and Tylenol, those can be your best friends <laughs> when you're having problems. But I'm sure that you're taking a number of medications and you have to be careful what other medications you take. Absolutely. Can you think of any extra precautions that your non-cardiac doctors had to take with you, given the fact that you do have a congenital heart defect and you are on some medications? Yeah. For all three of my eye muscle surgeries, I had to have a pediatric cardiac anesthesiologist put me to sleep. Mm -hmm. and I had to be under a little bit more special observation afterwards because of my heart condition. We were a little extra cautious. And my back doctor growing up in my teenage years, there are certain places he couldn't crack, like near my chest and everything, because the bones there, he didn't, he didn't want to risk anything, you know, bad happening. So yeah, definitely there's some extra precautions that were taken. Well, we only have about one minute left, Lauren. So In this last minute, could you tell us what advice you would give to parents of children with complex heart defects to help them be aware that they might have other non-cardiac issues that they'll have to deal with with their children? Oh, well, if you suspect something early on, definitely just don't ignore the signs. As for those that could have complications from their surgeries, like the Fontan and the liver, if you're a teenager and an adult, definitely get your liver checked out at least once a year with an MRI. And make sure you do your research and be proactive because being proactive can help us extend our lives to the fullest. That's excellent advice. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And now we'll have to go to a commercial break, but... Don't leave yet. Today, we have a heart dad coming from England who will be talking to us about how he felt isolated after his son's diagnosis with protein-losing enteropathy. Find out what happened when he flew to America to find out about this serious condition when we return to Heart to Heart with Anna. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect, or CHD, community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, A handbook for parents will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. Anna Jaworski has spoken around the world at congenital heart defect events, and she is available as a keynote or guest speaker for your event. Go to hearttoheartwithanna.com to learn more about booking Anna for your event. You can also find out more about the radio program. Keep up to date with CHD resources and information about advocacy groups, as well as read Anna's weekly blog. Anna wants you to stay well-connected and participate in the CHD community. Visit hearttoheartwithanna.com today. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at heart to heart with Anna.com. That's Anna 
at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Welcome back to our show, Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Today we are talking to Lauren Bednarts, David Simpson, and Dr. Amy Roberts about non-cardiac health issues in complex CHD survivors. We just finished talking with Lauren about her experience with having congenital scoliosis and eye problems. Now we will turn our attention to David Simpson. David Simpson, PhD, has had a 20-year career in medical physics. He married his wife, Helen, in 1997. They have three children, Alastair, Eleanor, and Catherine. Al was born with aortic atresia, a variant of hypoplastic left heart syndrome, or HLHS. In October of 2007, Al developed protein-losing enteropathy, or PLE, a potentially fatal condition. Knowing no one else with PLE, Helen and David were frustrated. The heart and intestinal specialist didn't work together, even though PLE is not uncommon in HLHS survivors. They felt isolated, but slowly made connections with researchers and parent groups to try to find out what they could. David flew to the United States to meet Dr. Jack Reichick. David asked him questions for two hours about PLE and its significance in the CHD community. He flew to San Diego and met with Dr. Hudson Freeze. David concluded his trip by flying to New York and meeting with Tom Colson, another heart dad who dealt with PLE and had set up a charity to research for a cure. We'll meet Dr. Amy Roberts in our next segment. Thank you, David, for coming on Heart to Heart with Anna. Well, thank you very much for asking me. Uh, yeah, it's very nice to have the opportunity to chat with someone in Texas when you're uh, sitting in Canterbury in England. I know, you're my second United Kingdom guest, and I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. And for those listeners who may not know it, David was also a contributor to The Heart of a Father. So this is a sort of reunion for David and me. David, first of all, can you tell us about how Al is doing right now and tell our listeners what PLE is and how you discovered that your son had that condition? Yeah, well, um, to start with, Alistair's doing very well. Uh, I'm actually sitting in his bedroom uh, on his computer equipment. He's my technical support for this call. And so he's grown up to be a very able 13-year-old. But yes, I mean, if I asked you how Alex was, there's always part of you that's going to be worried about them. It uh, it's goes with um, being a heart parent. So yeah, got a bit of a cold today. <laughs> but in general, no, we're really pleased with how he's doing. He does full-time in mainstream school. Kids with PLE are often shorter than their peers, and, and that's true for Alistair. But no, in general, very proud of him and very pleased with how he's doing. But we have been through a lot with, I think, the essay that uh, I did for, for you for the, the Heart of the Father covered the, the first three operations for his hypoplastic left heart variant. Yeah, I think a lot of your listeners will be aware of the chat you have where the doctors come and tell you uh, what's wrong with your child and what you can expect. And we basically had another one of those chats really out of the blue when Alistair was seven. We noticed that his stomach had been getting a little bit swollen and after a summer where he really wasn't himself, they did a stool test and discovered that uh, he was losing protein through his gut. It was the first we'd ever heard about it. And we were, we were told that it was a very serious condition. Prognosis up to that point had been quite poor. 
and that it's possible he would need a heart transplant. So, yes, that was quite difficult news to, to take. Yes, you wanted me to say what protein-losing enteropathy is. Yes, um, if you would explain it to our listening audience. I know that that's something that a lot of people hear about, but they don't know exactly what it means. Well, again, as your audience may well know, if you have a single ventricle condition and you have the staged Fontaine procedure, your body's set up to have a single loop circulation. So all the blood returns to your heart through the lungs. Instead of having a separate heart that just takes the job of sending the blood from the heart to the lungs and back, that's done by passive drainage of the blood on the way back to the heart. Mm -hmm. Much easier with a a back of an envelope so I can draw a diagram, but that's the best (laughs) I can describe it. So that circulation works very well, but the pressures are all wrong. Because the lungs are in the way of the blood getting back to the heart, the blood pressure, the other organs, are not what they're expecting. So the pressure at the gut seems to cause some sort of inflammation to happen. And as far as I can see, it seems to trigger something a bit like an inflammatory bowel condition. And that's making the gut porous and it's letting protein out. So obviously that's bad news. You need protein for bone growth and everything. Mm -hmm. But more seriously than that, if your protein drops below a certain level, your blood can't retain the liquid in the circulation. Your blood needs a certain level of protein to hold the fluid in. And if it drops below that level, the fluid just accumulates in your tissues and your heart finds it increasingly difficult to pump this volume of fluid around and it can get to be very serious and lead to quite a, a nasty downward spiral. Fortunately, we had some parents ahead of us who'd done a fair bit of work and Alistair was put onto a treatment that had been published maybe four months earlier called sildenafil. And that opens up the capillaries in the, the lungs And it makes the lungs much easier for the blood to travel through. So that starts to sort the blood pressure out. Oh, okay. Um, And um, Alistair responded to that and some steroid treatment to to sort out the inflammation. And um, yeah, that seemed to do the trick. So it's actually gotten his PLE under control, so it's not such a major issue for him? Yes. After he started out on a standard steroid prednisolone, But my trip to America uncovered a new steroid that was being used in Children's Hospital of Philadelphia by Dr. Rychik. And that was something that was designed for inflammatory bowel disease. And actually, interestingly, that was suggested by another parent of a child with PLE as a potential treatment for PLE. So we're really grateful for the the work that parents who've gone before have put into helping us deal with this disease. So when I went on my trip in 2010, Alistair was doing well on the standard steroid, but shortly after that, he didn't seem to do so well. But because I'd made those contacts, I was able to persuade his clinicians to try the what was standard practice in America, and he responded well to that. Um, Then in June this year, he needed a catheter procedure, again, to try and equalize the the pressure at the gut. It all seems to 
hinge on blood pressure. That seems to be the, the, the key to this disease. Mm-hmm. So what other organizations have you found particularly supportive since your son's diagnosis? Well, it's been quite tricky because it's a rare complication of what's a rare disease. So there are very few people have yet to meet another parent in the UK with a child with this condition. So the organization that we found most useful is called Little Hearts Matter. And that's a single ventricle charity based in Birmingham in the UK. And that's been great because we've actually been able to meet face to face. Nothing beats actually spending some time in the same room as other parents that know what you've been through. Exactly. But Facebook has also been handy to make contacts throughout the year, throughout throughout the world with um, people who do have protein losing enteropathy. So there's a Facebook page, Post Fontan Protein Losing Enteropathy, which I only discovered recently, but that's been very useful as well. I may never meet those people, but they know the detail of the exact condition that we're dealing with. Right. And I went out and looked at that page when you shared it with me, and it does seem to be helpful to talk to other parents who have experienced the same things that you have experienced with your son. So you've been an amazing advocate for Alistair and others suffering with PLE because I know you're my go-to person. Whenever I have a parent contact me who says my child has PLE, I always put them in touch with you. Can you tell us what our listeners can do to help themselves or to help others with PLE? Yeah, well, I hope I don't spoil the magic of radio, but you you sent me this question in advance and I've been thinking about it for days now. I don't generally like giving advice. I don't really think of myself as an expert, but I'll pass on the advice from the Colson family that I got when I visited them there. And that was actually to take my wife out for a weekend away and make sure that we were really talking together. It's really easy to get caught up in trying to fix this as a technical problem. But hopefully this is going to be something you're going to be managing for decades. So you have to think of it as a long-term condition and you need the support of the people close to you. So my advice would be, if you're listening to this, you're probably doing a lot of research. You probably know a lot of the facts. And what you need is the emotional support. Get the people alongside you who are close to you to do this with you and not to do it alone. So that would be my advice. That's beautiful advice. You could have been on my show last week where we talked about how having a child with a heart defect affects parental relationships. That was the advice that was given on that show also was the importance of communication. So I love that, especially being a wife. I love the idea that you feel that what's really important is to continue to foster that relationship so the two of you can be united to help your son the best you can. I love that. Thank you so much, David, for coming on the show. Thanks again. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Well, now it's time for a commercial break, but don't go far. Stay tuned to find out what a geneticist from one of the leading children's hospitals in the United States has to say about non-cardiac health issues in children with complex congenital heart defects when we return to Heart to Heart with Anna. Texas Heart Institute were offering us a mechanical heart and he said, no, Dad, I've had enough. Give it to someone who's worthy. My father promised me a golden dress to twirl in. He held my hand and asked me where I wanted to go. Whatever strife or conflict that we experienced in our long career together was always healed by humor. 
Heart to Heart with Michael. Please join us every Thursday at noon Eastern as we talk with people from around the world who have experienced those most difficult moments. Home Tonight Forever by the Baby Blue Sound Collective. I think what I love so much about this CD is that some of the songs were inspired by the patients. Many listeners will understand many of the different songs and what they've been inspired by. Our new album will be available on iTunes, Amazon.com, Spotify. I love the fact that the proceeds from this CD are actually going to help those with congenital heart defects. Enjoy the music. Home Tonight Forever. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at Heart to Heart with Anna.com. That's Anna at Heart to Heart with Anna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Welcome back to the show, Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Today we are talking with Lauren Bednards. David Simpson, and Dr. Amy Roberts about non-cardiac health issues in complex CHD survivors. We just finished talking to David Simpson about his experience with PLE and with Lauren Bernards about her experience with congenital scoliosis and eye problems in addition to having a complex heart defect. Now we will meet Dr. Amy Roberts. Dr. Amy Roberts is a cardiovascular geneticist and researcher. She is also an assistant professor of medicine at Boston Children's Hospital. She is board certified, specializing in medical genetics. She graduated from Dartmouth Medical School, completed a residency in pediatrics at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center, and then completed a second residency in medical genetics at Harvard Medical School in 2004. Dr. Roberts is a published author, having published articles in peer-reviewed journals. She has done research specifically addressing Noonan syndrome, Barth syndrome, dilated and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and Potlick-Lipsky syndrome. She has also done other research into genetic causes of congenital heart disease. She is on the medical advisory board for Cardiofascia Cutaneous Syndrome International and the Noonan Syndrome Foundation. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, Dr. Roberts. Thank you. Thank you for having me. As a geneticist, what kind of non-cardiac problems do you commonly see associated with complex congenital heart defect survivors? Well, there are a few broad categories that I commonly encounter, and then any other number of medical problems are certainly seen. But the most common things that I deal with, particularly in the first few years, usually center around growth and oftentimes feeding problems. So those two things can be related in that if a child is having trouble taking in enough calories, then obviously their growth will be affected. And there are other children for whom they have the mechanics of feeding down but still seem to be somewhat growth delayed. And this raises a number of issues, which is uh, to ask whether or not it's actually the child's underlying heart problem that's causing the growth issues or if it seems like the growth issues are independent of the heart problem. Right. I have a lot of friends who have children with growth issues. And my own son was labeled failure to thrive before his heart defect was 
finally diagnosed. Right. That's actually, unfortunately, more common than we would hope or like. Actually, you find out that because of the extra work of a heart that didn't form as we had hoped it would, that can lead to growth issues because so much of the energy is going towards just keeping the heart pumping and the blood flowing. Also, children who've had prolonged intubation because they needed to be on a ventilator can have a lot of oral feeding issues. Sometimes they can be quite defensive about having things put into their mouth and develop oral aversion and need alternative ways of being fed either through a nasogastric tube or a gastric tube directly. So those are common issues for children that I see. I also see significant variability, but very commonly issues with developmental delays, and that can be delayed motor milestones, so learning to sit or stand or walk later than we might expect, learning to talk a little bit later, and then also later on learning issues and learning disabilities. And again, just like with the growth issues, this raises the question of whether or not this is secondary to perhaps surgical complications or prolonged periods of time with inappropriate oxygenation that may be leading to developmental issues or learning issues, or is it something that even without a heart problem, a child may already have had a predisposition to have developmental delays or cognitive issues. And then for a child who has one quote-unquote birth defect, which would be the congenital heart malformation, they do have an increased chance of having a second birth defect. And so we sometimes see children who have one kidney instead of two or a malformed kidney. They can have vertebral anomalies like Lauren described in the first segment. They can have extra fingers or missing fingers or clefting of the lip or clefting of the palate. So uh, any number of birth defects can come along also with congenital heart defects. That was excellent. That was an excellent description of so many of the conditions that I hear parents talking about on the Facebook pages that I belong to. Yeah. Can you tell us why some non-cardiac conditions seem to present themselves right away, like the eye problems that Lauren discussed, but how other problems don't seem to show up until much later, like Lauren's congenital scoliosis or David's son who had PLE? Sure. I think to some extent it depends upon what exactly you're talking about, why it would take longer to be a parent. And that's because in the example of David's son's PLE, that was, as he very eloquently described, secondary to the way that his son's cardiac surgery altered the blood flow and subsequently changed the blood perfusion of his intestines. It was secondary to all of those things. And that blood flow pattern didn't exist until after he'd had his surgeries and the damage that it did to the intestines took some time to develop, so he didn't become symptomatic until he was seven. In the case of Lauren's congenital scoliosis, I can't specifically talk about it not knowing the details of her case, but I could guess that one issue may have been that it just wasn't noted until she started to get taller, and then maybe uh, the curvature was seen when she was having a physical exam and bending over. However, if she was truly born with a malformation of one of the vertebral bodies in her spine, had specific spine x-rays been done, it would have been seen as soon as she was born. But it took Mm -hmm. some time with her growth and development for it to be seen simply on a physical exam without them looking for it specifically by x-ray. So it sort of depends on the issue itself. Eye problems are the esotropia that Lauren described or the eye that turns in is something that parents note right away because you expect your child to be looking at you directly with their eyes pointing right at you. And if you look at photographs, you often will notice that an eye turns in. That's when it's often noticed by parents and usually noted by a parent before it's noted by a physician because it can be subtle at the beginning and only seen, for example, when a child is very tired or when they're sick, it may be much more obvious. And so a parent who's spending a lot of time with their child may note it before a physician who really is essentially spending very brief periods of time with the child would note it on a physical exam. 
And that's one of the reasons it's so important for parents not to be afraid to say something to their doctors, because they may notice something that a doctor wouldn't simply because they spend so much more time with the child. Isn't that true? I think that's absolutely true. And for a child who has a sort of complicated medical history, I think it's always important to really listen to what the parents are saying, because I think nobody knows a child as well as the parent does for that very reason, and especially a parent who really has become quite well-versed in medical things that are going on and paying attention to their child and really is in tune with everything that's happening and knows when, even if they don't know the proper terminology, they know when something is different or something feels not quite right. And it's really important to do the best you can to explain that. Good. I love hearing doctors say that because as a parent, I actually did come in contact with some doctors who did not treat me with the respect that I felt I should be given. Mm -hmm. And I even had a doctor tell me it wasn't natural or normal for a parent to research their child's heart defect and that I should just trust the doctors. Oh, that's terrible. (laughs) I'm sorry that happened. That sounds like maybe I'm going to make an assumption here, but maybe an older physician who might have said that to you. I would hope that that would be a rare circumstance happening now. No, sadly, that was a very young person. Who oh, was no. Oh. But I only worked with her once. <laughs> well, see, that's, that's the good thing. There are lots of doctors out there. So, And I think that that's actually, you know, we're, we're laughing, but it is an important point. You have to trust the person who's taking care of your child. And if you don't feel that they're listening to you, then you, I, I can't imagine that you could, you could trust them. So it's certainly worthwhile to spend a little bit of time finding and creating the team that you think listens to you when it comes to any concerns that you have. And I love that because that's exactly what we should be. We should all be a team that's working together for the benefit of our children. Yes, I agree. I love that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's important for children with complex congenital heart defects to have genetic testing? And can that testing help us to be alerted to some non-cardiac issues that they might have? Well, I think before one jumps to the question of genetic testing, the question that I might ask first is whether or not the child needs a genetic evaluation or an evaluation by a geneticist. So the real question to ask is, is there any evidence early on or even a little bit later that there are issues outside of the heart that are really not explained by the heart? So are the developmental delays outside of or more extensive than one might have expected based on the child's history of surgery and the extent of their heart defect? Are the growth delays out of proportion with what one might have expected based on their feeding history, caloric intake? You know, something that indicates that there may be a genetic diagnosis, a larger genetic diagnosis that explains why they were born with their heart malformation. And certainly anybody who was born with a second birth defect, we would say, should probably have a genetic evaluation with a geneticist to say, is there a larger umbrella diagnosis that may explain why a child was born with not just congenital heart disease, but other issues as well. Understanding that that's not always straightforward to tease out whether or not the other issues a child is facing are secondary to the heart problem or in addition to the heart problem. And genetic testing is evolving quite rapidly, and we actually have quite a bit of testing to offer families once we've done an evaluation to help, first of all, understand whether or not there are other issues that we need to be on the lookout for, and also what is the chance that, for example, that these parents may have a second child with a heart defect? What should we be thinking about for siblings that are already born and for their own future children? And for the child who's born with a congenital heart defect when they're an adult, is there an increased chance that they themselves will have a child born with a congenital heart defect if they decide to have children of their own? That's all excellent advice. And those are all excellent points that you made. We only have one minute left. So I'm hoping in this last minute, you can tell me what advice you would offer parents of children with complex congenital heart defects 
or even adult survivors if they should feel that something is wrong? How can parents make sure their children are receiving all the medical care they need without going overboard? Sure. I think it's really important, and this sort of echoes the conversation we already had, which is to say that you really need to partner with your primary care provider and your cardiologist. If you're concerned that something seems unusual, to speak to them and say, what is your experience? Do you think that this is unusual and warrants further exploration? Or do you think that this is sort of part and parcel with my history of my surgeries, my heart disease, and really it's something that we should have expected and shouldn't be surprised by? And they can help you with that if you're not quite sure, as long as you are on the same page and feel as though they're really understanding what it is that you're concerned about. That's excellent advice. I think so many of us heart parents feel like we become friends with our children's doctors because they do become part of a care team. Mm-hmm. And you feel a closeness to them that you wouldn't normally feel to your child's pediatrician or pediatric cardiologist. But in the heart world, I feel like we get really close to those who are providing care for our children. Well, I think that that's a natural result of spending, first of all, more than the average amount of time with your child's doctors, but also making very important decisions together. And that sort of once you've built that trust, that breeds that feeling of teamwork and working together. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Dr. Roberts. You were awesome. And unfortunately, now it's time for another commercial break, but don't leave yet. We still have today's miracle moment, and that will be coming from the heart of a father. Find out what Jacob's bright smile might mean when we return to Heart to Heart with Anna. Heart to Heart with Anna is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to uplift, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at www.congenitalheartdefects.com for information about CHD, the hospitals that treat children with CHD, summer camps for CHD survivors, and much, much more. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Welcome back to the 12th episode of Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Our purpose is to empower members of our community with resources, support, and advocacy information. Now, for our miracle moment. Our miracle moment today comes from the heart of a father and is written by Tim Bretthauer. Tim's essay is entitled Jacob's Bright Smile, and I will be selecting excerpts from the essay. To read the essay in full, please turn to page 101 in The Heart of a Father. Tim writes, Jacob Riley Brethauer was born on August 1st, 1997. August 9th, we were given the worst news of our lives. Jacob had hypoplastic left heart syndrome. I remember the doctor pulling us into a side room away from the rest of the family. She told us the news and then drew some crude pictures to show us what was wrong with Jacob's heart. When she completed our education, she began telling us our options. We could go with a three-stage open-heart surgery, a heart transplant, or compassionate care. The third option meant that he would be made as comfortable as possible and allowed to pass away. We were not quite ready to let go. 
We were given time to think about this decision, but not much. The doctor felt it was necessary to give us statistics and details on the various procedures. The doctor told us that only about 20% of the patients survived all of the scheduled surgeries. We were also told that at that hospital, no child had ever waited more than 10 weeks for a new heart. We were then shown a picture of a child that was doing outstanding. We have learned many doctors have a bias one way or the other in their portrayal of each procedure. We were sucked into this bias and shown one side of the story. We basically had the choice of 20% survival rate, three different times, and a poor quality of life or almost guaranteed success as it was portrayed to us with transplantation. Given the same choice, worded the same way, most people would choose guaranteed success. We chose it as well. Now we could do nothing but wait. Doctors warn you that while waiting for a heart, your child will get progressively worse. Their weight will go down, other organs will fail, and other complications will arise. Fortunately, the first two never happened to Jacob. He gained weight. His other organs never came close to failing. Jacob was being kept alive because he was taking a medication that made his heart function as it does in the womb. A tube called a patentectus arteriosus, or PDA, allows blood to pass between the main cardiac arteries. The medication keeps the PDA open when it usually closes anywhere from hours to 30 days after birth. One of the complications we were never warned about was that this hole could close. No one had waited more than 10 weeks before at this hospital, so it had never been an issue. Unfortunately, we got a rude awakening about the danger of this complication. Just before Jacob hit his 10-week point, a little girl waiting for a heart hit her 10-week point. She had to have a procedure to break open this hole and buy some time. Sadly, something went wrong, and she died as a result of the procedure. Shortly thereafter, Jacob needed the same procedure. Jacob survived, but the next day he had a stroke. Later, we learned it was a major stroke, affecting the entire right side of his brain. The doctors felt he would never crawl here or maybe never walk. Loma Linda was unsure whether they wanted to do a transplant on him. It took over a week before they decided to go ahead with the procedure. With the stroke behind us, we were left with nothing to do but wait. They let us dress him as a pumpkin for Halloween. We started planning for Thanksgiving. We got a call late on a Thursday that a heart had come in. The surgery took eight hours. Jacob was in isolation for two weeks after surgery. We had waited four months for Jacob to get a heart. Jacob progressed well after that, and we brought him to our real home in early March of the next year. Since that time, Jacob has had problems with other areas unrelated to his heart and thought to be other birth defects. The main problem was with one of his kidneys. The kidney problem caused him to take medication to make his kidneys function better and with less strain. He had eczema complicated by his neural, which is one of the medications he takes for his heart transplant. However, his heart has never had trouble. It takes him longer to get over a cold, yet considering where he was, Jacob is generally healthy. He went to a special education preschool for a while. This was mainly due to limitations from the stroke. The stroke weakened his left side. He had trouble with fine motor skills. The doctors think that Jacob may have been born left-handed. He has been forced to become right-handed. This made writing especially difficult for him. The doctors who said Jacob would never crawl were right. He didn't. He just learned to scoot around on his bottom. Children are very resourceful in overcoming obstacles. However, those same doctors were wrong when they said he wouldn't hear or walk. His hearing is fine. He walks and even runs. He went to physical therapy for about four years and had fine motor therapy. He no longer needs therapy of any kind. He is in regular classes, and he is in the upper half of his class. 
He struggles sometimes to find the right words to say what he means and stutters or repeats himself until he finds the right words. Yet he speaks at his age level. He can read some and knows his alphabet by sight and loves to display this talent as much as possible. Jacob's bright smile and never give up personality are an inspiration not only to me and my wife, but to every person who meets him. To read the full essay, please turn to pages 101 to 107 in the heart of a father. That concludes this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. Today's episode was meant to educate and empower the congenital heart defect community. Although hearing about non-cardiac health issues that many of our CHD survivors face can be scary, it's even scarier when our heart warriors grow up, stop taking their medications, stop continuing to see their cardiologists, and become lost to medical care. When this happens, more severe problems can and often do crop up later. Instead, we hope that this show has illustrated some possible problems that are not uncommon, steps that can be taken to ensure the best quality of life possible, and ways for parents and survivors to become strong advocates for themselves. I want to thank again my excellent guests today, Lauren Bernards, David Simpson, and also Dr. Amy Roberts. They did an excellent job in helping us to understand better non-cardiac health issues in children with congenital heart defects. Please come back next week when our show will be called, What is Normal Child Development for Survivors of Congenital Heart Defects? Until then, please find and like us on Facebook, check out our website, Heart to Heart with Anna, and remember, my friends, you are not alone. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you've been inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart defect community. Heart to Heart with Anna with your host, Anna Jaworski, can be heard every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time. We'll talk again next week. Oh,